0: So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting Bluehost.com. That's Bluehost.com.
1: Hey, everybody. I'm John Donvan, host and moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates. And in this episode, we're taking on a topic that's going to hit close to home, I'm pretty sure, for all of us, because... It concerns the way we were raised, our upbringings. And we've all had one of those, one way or another. But how much did your upbringing actually influence who you turned out to be? Today, parents and caretakers in general are under so much pressure to produce a kid who is going to be the happiest or the best at something or fill in whatever your preferred superlative is. Free-range parenting, helicopter parenting, tiger mom parenting. What's the right choice? What are you supposed to do? But what if science is here to tell you, don't sweat it? It's mostly out of your control as a parent, because it's your kid's DNA that says the most about who that kid is and who that kid's going to grow up to be. Since ancient times, this quandary has persisted, usually described as the nature versus nurture argument. But advances in DNA research are reviving the controversy. And that's why we think it has the makings of a debate. So we had it. We brought four experts, leaders in the science and psychology behind parenting and genetics, to our stage at the K Playhouse in New York City. It was a competition of ideas in three rounds on one question, which we call our resolution. Yes or no to this statement, parenting is overrated. Our live audience voted before the show and you can still cast your pre-debate vote online right now. Visit iq2us.org. That's iq the number 2 us.org. As always, our audience decides which team wins the day. Now, on to the debate. Our resolution again, parenting is overrated. Let's meet the debaters starting with the team arguing for the resolution. Please welcome Robert Plowman. Robert, you are a professor of behavioral genetics at King's College in London. You're a leading scholar in this field, truly a leading scholar. You are the author of a recent book, Blueprint, How DNA Makes Us Who We Are. Robert, it's so great to have you with us here tonight. Thank you very much, John. And ladies and gentlemen, your debating partner, let's welcome Nancy Siegel. Hi, Nancy. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. You are a professor of psychology and you're a director of the Twin Study Center at California State University in Fullerton. You are the author of six books on twins. You're working on yet another book. Thanks so much for being with us tonight.
0: A pleasure to be here, John.
1: And we have two debaters arguing against the resolution parenting is overrated. Please first welcome Paige Harden. Hi, Paige. Uh, You're a professor of psychology at the University of Texas. There in Texas, you had the Developmental Behavior Genetics Lab. You co-direct the Texas Twin Project. Welcome to Intelligence Squared.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: And your teammate, Anne Plachette Murphy, and you're a therapist. You're a parenting counselor. You're an author. You are a parenting correspondent for ABC's Good Morning America. We both once worked there. Nice to see you again. You served as editor-in-chief of Parents Magazine for over a decade. It is great to have you here.
3: Thanks so much.
1: And so on to the debate itself, round one. Round one is comprised of opening statements by each debater in turn. They will be six minutes each. And here to argue first in support of the resolution Parenting is Overrated is Professor of Behavioral Genetics at King's College London, Robert Plowman. Thank you, John.
4: I don't think parenting is overrated if what we're talking about is the great joy that people get from raising children. And no one thinks that parenting is overrated if we're talking about the fact that the human infant is helpless and can't survive without caregivers. So parents matter, but that's not what the motion's about. The motion is about the relative impact of nature and nurture. My book, Blueprint, um, is based on my 45 years of research trying to understand the genetic and environmental causes of differences between children using twins, adoptees, and now DNA. That research and other research over 40 years has convinced most scientists that inherited DNA differences account for about 50% of the differences between children on all psychological traits. Their personalities, their mental health and illness, and their cognitive abilities and disabilities. What amazes me is that if you look at all the parenting books that are out there, and they're very popular books, not one mentions genetics. The other 50% of the differences between children are due to the environment, but it's not the environment as we know it. Um, Genetic research has shown us that the environment works very differently from the way environmentalists thought it worked from Freud onwards. It's not due to systematic effects of parents or very early uh, environment. differences The systematic effects of parenting are mostly genetic effects in disguise. Parents are responding to genetic differences in their children rather than creating those differences. The important environmental factors operate in a rather mysterious way. They make two children in the same family with the same parents different from one another. For example, Professor Siegel will talk about her work on twins reared apart. Identical twins reared together are no more similar than identical twins reared apart suggesting that being reared together doesn't make you similar. After 30 years of research trying to identify these environmental factors that make children in a family different from one another, I've come to conclude that they're essentially unsystematic, idiosyncratic, random, in a word, chance. In other words, I'm saying that Parenting differences within the normal range, that is, excluding the extremes of, say, abuse, don't make much of a difference in the long run. And the important message from this is that parents don't have as much control as they think they have. Parenting books make parents anxious by telling them they're responsible for the way their children turn out. But there isn't much evidence for this once you control for the fact of genetic similarity between parents and um, their offspring, It's important to recognize that when children have problems, like children develop severe problems like autism or depression or schizophrenia, it's especially important for parents to realize they don't have all the control or much control uh, at all. And so the, the key question is, Why do parents, why do some children develop these problems despite having good parents and good parenting? Parenting theories have trouble explaining that, but genetics predicts it. Children are 50% similar to their parent genetically, but that means they're also 50% different genetically. The importance of genetics doesn't mean parents should throw up their hands and say there's nothing they can do about it. For example, parents can and I think should control their children's problem behavior, but they're not changing their children's personality. Isn't it better that we, as parents, give children opportunities to find out what they like to do, appetites, and what they do well, aptitudes? Part of the joy of parenting is to watch our children become who they are genetically. And I think you might as well enjoy it because you don't make much of a difference in the long run.
1: Thank you, Robert Bowman. And here to make her opening statement against the resolution, psychology professor at University of Texas, Paige Harden.
2: All right. So in the late 1990s, Gwyneth Paltrow starred in this movie called Sliding Doors. And in an early scene, you see her racing to catch a train that she gets just in the nick of time. And then in another early scene, you see her same character racing to catch the same train, except this time she misses it. And the whole movie pings back and forth between these two alternate realities. I love this movie for lots of reasons, but one of them is because I think it gets at a question that a lot of us ask ourselves, which is the question of, what if? Could my life have been different? And I think once we become parents, those what ifs just multiply. What if I had stayed home instead of going out to work? What if I had breastfed instead of formula feeding? We are fascinated by this question of whether or not our child's lives could have been different and whether or not there's was something that we could do that could have made them different. So as we'll hear from our opponents this evening, twin studies provide a really fascinating glimpse into this question of what if. I also study twins and they give us a really compelling grip on does DNA shape our lives. But as you listen to them and you hear the stories of twins reared apart, reared together, I want you to be thinking about what they're not telling you. What are the what-ifs that are being missed? So the first big what-if that twin study people often acknowledge is that they're talking about what they call normal range variation in parenting. They're not talking about the extremes of poverty or abuse or violence. And to hear people talk, you might imagine that these experiences are so rare that maybe we can get away without thinking about them too much in the course of ordinary science. But I think that that is obviously not true. So the University of Michigan's National Poverty Center, it estimates that 2.8 million children in the U.S. live in families that are making it on less than $2 per day per person, um, what the World Bank calls deep poverty. If we're thinking about violence or victimization, we can see that 1 in 16 children will be sexually victimized this year. Protecting children from violence, providing food, providing shelter, providing basic material resources, this is part of parenting. And it is a part of parenting that many people find very challenging in our increasingly unequal society. Of course, poverty doesn't happen at random, It's racialized in the U.S., and that's another thing that you probably won't hear my opponents talk too much about, because the vast majority of genetic research, not all of it, but most of it has been conducted with white people, and also with what psychologists call weird people, so people from Western, industrialized, educated, rich, and democratic societies. Just like a fish can't recognize the water that it swims in, A scientist that spent his entire career studying the differences within weird white people can become blind to the systematic effects, not of DNA, but the systematic effects of culture. And parents transmit culture. A large part of what parents do is teach the cultural rules about how do we eat, how do we talk, who do we live with, how do we love, how do we arrange our family relationships. So let's go back to this question of what if. What if you had the same genes, but you were raised in a different family? But instead of doing it within another family in the Upper East Side of Manhattan, where we are tonight, let's say that your child was raised by a Hazda family in Tanzania. So now his parents don't send him to school, but they do teach him to hunt and forage so that he can collect over 90% of his food by the time he's five. If we're considering the global diversity in parenting and what parents teach, what they do for their children, I think it becomes impossible to say that parents don't make a difference for who children become. To say that parenting doesn't make a difference requires us to say that who we are as adults is radically decontextualized. Can who you are be considered separate from your culture, from your race, from your social class, from your religion? And we get these social identities not entirely but in large part from our parents.
1: Our live audience in New York City has voted, but before I announce the results, there's still time for you listening right now to cast your second vote in our online poll. Visit iq2us.org. That's iq the number 2 us.org. More opening statements on whether parenting is overrated right after this. And a reminder of where we are. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters arguing it out over this resolution. Parenting is overrated. You've heard from the first two opening statements and now on to the third to debate for the resolution. Here is Professor of Psychology and Director of the Twin Studies Center at California State University, Fullerton, Nancy Siegel. Ladies and gentlemen, Nancy Siegel.
0: So when I told a colleague that I was participating in this debate, he said to me, you can't win, because parents believe that what they do makes an incredible difference in the lives of their children. But as my colleague Dr. Ploman pointed out, DNA is the key driving force behind how children turn out to be as individuals. Children are not blank slates. They come into the world with genetic predispositions that parents respond to and do not create. Parental influences do not work in the way that most people think they do. There are a number of misconceptions. For example, if I read to my child, I'll make him smarter. Or if I take my child to a museum, I'll turn her into an art lover. There are correlations between parent characteristics and child characteristics, but what drives that correlation, that's what's important to consider and genes and environments cannot be disentangled if you use intact biological families, because parents pass on both genes and environments to their children, what we call passive gene-environment correlation. Bright parents tend to have bright children, but they also tend to read to their children. Bright children also elicit opportunities for reading from their parents. Genes and environments can only be disentangled if you use twins and adoptees. And my colleagues and I have produced a number of compelling findings showing that virtually all behavioral traits have some degree of genetic influence. The logic of the twin method is very simple and very elegant. You simply compare the similarities of identical twins to the similarities of fraternal twins, and if the identical twins are more alike, which they invariably are, This is consistent with genetic influence on that particular behavior. And you know, twins are wonderful because they tell us so much about human behavior just by acting naturally. Now, one of the most provocative findings to emerge in the last 30 years is that twins raised apart are as alike as twins raised together. It's the shared genes that contribute to similarity in family members living together. But genes only explain 50% of the variation. The other half is explained by the random, non-shared effects that people experience on their own. It's the shared environment that makes such a small difference. Think about religiosity and sports participation, very interesting behaviors. If you study young children living at home, you will not see a genetic effect. Identical twins are about as similar as fraternal twins because they're under the guidance of their parents. But once they begin to hit adolescence and adulthood, they acquire greater control over their environment, and new genetic effects kick in. Now, in contrast with twin studies, we have adopted siblings. And these are siblings who grow up together, share no genes in common, but do share their families and their communities. Scores of studies have shown little resemblance between them in most behaviors. You know, I think of parents of one child as environmentalists and parents of two children as geneticists. And I say that because parents of two children quickly realize that what works for one child may not work for another.
1: Thank you, Nancy Siegel. And that resolution, again, parenting is overrated, and here to make her statement against this resolution, author and parenting expert, Annie Pleshet murphy
3: Thank you. <laughs> So, Robert and Nancy believe that genes provide the blueprint of who our children become. We believe that the house is built on love. No matter our children's genetic makeup, they grow up in an environment of relationships, and they are shaped by the people who are likely to love them the most, their parents. So, even if a particular trait is, let's say, 50% due to genetic factors, aggressiveness, or shyness, or sexual orientation. How a parent responds to their highly assertive, or socially inhibited, or gay child is going to have an enormous impact on how that child feels about himself or herself, on their relationship, on their lives. There's a story that I love to tell parents who come to me for parenting advice, and it comes from twin studies of um, identical twins separated at birth and raised in different families. In this case, it was toddler girls and their respective mothers, and they were asked a host of developmental questions about the girls. And one of the mothers complained bitterly about her eating habits. She said, oh, my God, it drives me crazy. She won't eat anything. I give her everything children love. She won't eat it unless I put cinnamon all over it. And the other mother, when she was interviewed, had no complaints. She said, well, she eats everything, you know, she's everything we eat. Oh, I, I have to put cinnamon on everything. So, same genetic predisposition in one family, can, you know, led to conflict and stress, in the other, no big deal. Now, I have no idea if one of these children developed an eating disorder and the other one founded Cinnabon, but I will tell you that... This genetic predisposition in one family that had conflict and stress over a period of 10 years versus adaptation or acceptance is going to make a difference in how these girls turned out. Now, our opponents argue that then why are children, even environmental siblings, that is, adopted children compared to their biological siblings, so different if they have the same parents? Well, having the same parents is not the same as having the same parenting. If any of you have more than one child, I'm sure you remember that when the first baby's pacifier fell on the sidewalk, you sterilized it before you put it back in his mouth. By the third child, she was lucky if you licked it off and stuck it back in her mouth. So parental relationships are not static. They do evolve. They are complicated and idiosyncratic and unpredictable. But just because the effects of parenting are difficult to measure doesn't mean that we should dismiss a child's environment as random. In fact, there's an impressive and long history, you know, by psychologists, sociologists, anthropologists, educators, really frankly, other than geneticists, everybody I've ever heard of who says that there are myriad effects on children's development from their parents.
1: Thank you, Annie Fischette Murphy. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our resolution is parenting is overrated. Now we move on to round two, and round two is where the debaters address one another directly. They also take questions from me and from you, uh, members of our live audience here at the K Playhouse in New York City. The resolution is parenting is overrated. We have two debaters arguing for this resolution, Nancy Siegel and Robert Plowman. They are arguing that parenting is a very nice thing to experience. They are not saying that it doesn't play a role at all. They are saying, however, that it is far less significant than most people tend to assume. Uh, just some statistics I'll throw in. There are right now over 50 parenting podcasts. Forbes estimated the market for millennial mothers stands at $46 billion today. Only yesterday, when we checked, half of the Amazon's 50 best-selling books are either books for kids or books for parents. And none of these, uh, very few of these actually have any sort of focus on DNA. So what we're talking about is overrated in the framework of general assumptions that parenting is quite influential or genetics is underrated. They are ruling out, of course, the impact of extreme situations, extreme poverty, extreme abuse. But they say that by and large, that the DNA factor has been underrated, that it's at 50% plus. The team on the other side, Paige Harden and Annie Plachette Murphy, uh, they are not arguing that DNA has no influence, but they do point out that, um, that relationships are extremely important in determining who people are. They feel that their opponents are cherry picking around Uh, their data around uh, certain factors which would confound their results, such as social class. Um, I want to get just a little bit specific. This isn't really a question for debate. It's just a question to understand to the side that's arguing for the resolution. We've been talking in general terms about aspects of a child, of an individual, uh, that are determined by DNA that folks might not have thought so. Again, putting it in that framework. I just want to ask you, some of the things you're saying are predictive by DNA, and if if predictive is the wrong word, correct me on that, but at least influence. Are you saying that um, IQ is something that would be predictive through DNA? I'm gonna go through a short list. I'm just looking for yes, no on this. Sorry to sound like this is a congressional hearing, but I just just want to get it out on the record so I understand. I I want to go through IQ, income, educational attainment, religious preference, for example. Are these things that you're saying are determined by DNA that most people might think have to do with the environment?
0: John, I don't like the word determined. Genes work in probabilistic fashion. They make some things more likely and some things less likely, but they predispose you. They they are not deterministic. It takes an environment to... uh, to have genes be expressed.
1: So I'm glad that you corrected me on that, but can we go back to the list then? Are you talking about probabilistic influence on these kinds of factors? We're just looking for what Mm -hmm. it is we're talking about. Yeah.
4: Well, when I was in graduate school in the early 70s, it was dangerous to even bring up genetics. Things have changed so much now that the challenge is to find anything that doesn't show
1: significant genetic influence, including the things you mentioned. So IQ educational attainment, income, yes. being religious or not, being aggressive or not, yes. being depressed or not. Okay, so we're, those are the kinds of things that I wanted to make clear Can that I we're talking about. Can I make one point
0: quickly? When we talk about religious preference, we're talking about religiosity one's investment, one's involvement in religion, one's daily activities that have a religious bent. Yeah. We're not talking about religious affiliation. Yeah.
4: Okay. No, but We're talking about the things that psychologists usually study, these uh-huh. traits, individual differences, like differences in personality, mental health and illness, cognitive abilities and disabilities. Okay. All of those traits show significant and substantial genetic influence. Okay, let
1: me take that to your opponents then. So, so the, 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 they've made the case using these twin studies, which, which indeed are exceedingly elegant, very very compelling. And certain of these traits, I would say, for example, and you can challenge this, but I would say um, autism would not seem to be socially determined at a certain level. A certain degree of severity of autism is not going to be a social thing. It's going to be biologically determined. Uh, take, Take on the fact that the kinds of traits that Robert just talked about, he's saying stand apart from social Uh, from the sort of social cherry-picking criticism that you're talking about, that these are things that are innate, that are measurable, have been measurable for a long time.
2: Yeah, so I have two responses to that. When we're thinking about the life of a child with autism, are we talking about the symptoms that they develop at the age of two, or are we thinking about their level of functioning in the world, what school they can go to, what social relationships do they acquire, which is something that is a function of both the level severity of their disorder but also their availability of treatment and how what resources they have available to them in order to to address the symptoms of their disorder autism is a very highly heritable condition and when we're talking about someone's initial level of functioning at the time that they're diagnosed i think that parents probably do have a relatively limited impact on that where they do have a much greater impact and I think Annie would agree with me on this is how do they respond how do parents respond to that initial genetic condition. Mm -hmm. And do they have the resources to give their child the therapy, the play therapy, the access to groups, um, the support systems that they need in order to function at their maximal level of functioning? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think
3: one of the most um, interesting parts of your book, Robert, is this idea of the nature of nurture, which is something that Nancy also alluded to, which is that children elicit from their environments certain kinds of behaviors. So Robert makes a very impressive, persuasive point that children who have parents who love to read, um, you know, that they'll have children who love to read, and you know, you assume it's because the parents are reading to the children, but the children are are born into the world with a desire to be read to. But... I would argue that if they are living in a family where they can't afford a book, that it doesn't matter if they're trying to elicit this behavior. I think that's sort of what you're saying, Paige, that this idea that access to um, resources and access to all sorts of things that a lot of children don't have um, is, is not something you can just ignore.
1: Um, I want to move on to audience questions, but I want to start by, um, by uh, introducing to the, to the question Andrew Solomon, who is kind of an expert on the topic and uh, is a friend of Intelligence Squared. You are a lecturer yourself at Columbia University Medical Center. You've written a lot of books, uh, a, lot, a lot on the topic of the role of families, including the slam-dunk amazing book, Far From the Tree, which I bet everybody here has read at one point or another. I, I just want to ask, you, Andrew, as you've been listening to this, with your sharp ears, what question has come to your mind?
5: Well, I thought a lot of the philosopher John Locke, who was the one who originally said that children were a blank slate, whose character could be turned this way or that as easily as water, and who notably never had children. Um, LAUGHTER I'm going to point to two studies that I think are of interest. The first is one that was done by Myrna Weissman at Columbia in which she looked for solutions to the treatment of depressed children, and she tried dozens and dozens of different treatments and ultimately concluded that the most effective way to resolve depression in children was to treat their mothers. (laughs) And the second is a study that was done at Yale about 10 years ago in which they were studying um, the... Uh, tendency of abusive or neglectful parents to have abusive or neglectful children, and they pinpointed genes that were associated with vulnerability to parental influence, which is to say that if you didn't have those genes, you could be very badly abused and still turn out okay, and if you did have those genes, then it was highly likely that you would be transformed by um, the abusive environment and would go on to be um, abusive or often criminal yourself. So the question that I would put to the panelists is whether it's really possible to disentangle nature and nurture. Some people, I think, are largely the way they are as a result of their genetics. Some people are largely the way they are as a result of their environment. And most people represent a mixing of the two. Thanks so much, Andrew Solomon. Robert, you've been at, you've been at this the longest. Can you take that on?
1: As, as, as in fact, you do, you do come up with a number. Yeah.
4: Yeah, well, I think there was a number of different questions there, really. And the last one was, can we disentangle nature and nurture? And I think based on 100 years of research, using different designs you know, that have different problems, twins, adoption they converge on the same conclusion of the importance of genetics. So yes, I think you can disentangle them. And the answer is consistently, in the populations we study, that genetics is very important. We haven't even mentioned DNA. The DNA revolution is going to change everything. We can now estimate genetic influence with DNA itself in unrelated samples. And it's coming up with significant estimates of genetic influence too.
2: So I love that you brought up um, a parenting intervention for depression. It reminds me when I was training as a clinical psychologist, I had a supervisor who said that the most common diagnosis for children was what he called "nerf which was normal reaction to effed up parents. <laughs> so. <laughs> But I also love that you brought it up because it, it reminds us that we have more than one causal tool in the toolbox. So I think twin studies are beautiful because they, they, they capitalize on this natural experiment, the natural experiment of twinning, or this natural experiment of children who have been given up for adoption. But they're not the only experiments that we have. And I think Looking in particular at parenting intervention studies, um, and even intervening in things that we don't typically think of parenting, but just increasing parents' socioeconomic resources and how do they respond to that, give us great causal purchase about the effects of parenting on kids. Regarding whether or not you can um, ever disentangle nature and nurture, um, so I'm gonna, I'm, I'm reminded of something from actually your own book. So from in far from the tree, you talk about. Um, musical prodigies at one point in time. And you talk about how, is it innate talent or is it practice? And when you're looking at people who are at the very you know, extreme end of talent, you say, well, we can't possibly um, describe all of this with, with practice, right? There seems to be this role of innate talent. But if no one ever touches a musical instrument, then obviously they're not going to have any sort of musical talent So for any one person, how much of it is talent, how much of it is practice, it's impossible to say. I mean, when we're talking about the effects of parenting, I'm really thinking about like, what is the average treatment effect. So across people, what is the average? And then I think we can actually come up to a, if I've averaged across 100 people or a population, this is it. But I don't think we can ever say for an individual what is the dynamic cocktail that has made them who they are.
1: Nancy Siegel. Yeah,
2: I just want to clarify
0: something about heritability or genetic influence, and I think Paige was getting to that at the end of her comment. It's that when we talk about numbers, 50%, 40%, we're talking about populations, vary, variation from person to person. Mm. But in a single individual, you cannot pull apart genes and environments. You can't say that for this child, 80% of, her, 80% of her intelligence score is accounted for by genes and 20% by the environment. And I think that's a concept that's critical to understand. It's not difficult, but it's one that unfortunately gets lost. And a lot of this has always been in the media, and it's just not clearly... Explained. If you get my, one of my books, you'll see I have a glossary at the end, and it's very clear there, too.
1: I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. More questions from the audience and closing statements when we return. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S., where we are debating the resolution, parenting is overrated. Now, back to questions from the audience. Hello, my name is Lucas So up until this point, everyone on both sides of this debate has been talking about how there's a sort of head-to-head 50-50 challenge between genetics and environment using twin and family studies. But I had uh, read and understood that using newer, more recent technology that looks at DNA, that this proportion is actually very different, that genetics explains far less uh, for very socially relevant traits such as IQ and educational attainment. So question for Robert Ploman and and Nancy Siegel, is that correct? Is the debate still 50-50 between genetics and environment when we look at DNA? Thank you.
4: Yeah. When I said you can use DNA itself to estimate heritability, it involves some technical issues about these chips that measure millions of DNA differences. The problem is we're limited to those that we actually measure. So we're underestimating the total influence of genetics. But the point is, with one hand tied behind our back, we're estimating about 50% of the heritability found in twin and adoption studies. And this is only in the last few years. Once we do whole genome sequencing, where we get all the DNA differences, there's a recent study that shows that we will be predicting almost as much heritability as twin and adoption studies. There's a lot of technical stuff behind all of that, but that's the short answer.
0: Also, I'll just add that while most traits do show about a 50-50 genetic environmental split, some show higher. Autism is much higher, maybe 70-80%. IQ seems to be about 75%, and there are some that are lower, like job satisfaction
2: at 30%. I would say that I view this question as much more open scientifically than I think Robert and Nancy are giving us credit for. So I think one possibility is that it's technical issues. And that as we sequence more of the genome, we'll recover some of the twin estimates of heritability. But I also think it's possible that the twin studies are overestimates and that what we're getting from molecular methods are more accurate. Um, And I think if we surveyed the statistical genetics community, we would see a lot of division around whether or not they think this is a problem that is eventually going to settle around the twin estimates.
1: Okay, I'm going to go to sitting against the wall, back uh, red, I think.
2: So my name is Christine, and uh, the last gentleman actually did this also. I've heard uh, the word environment versus genetics a lot. And I am curious, is environment the same as parenting?
1: Thank you. And could you define parenting? That's a great question, actually, and you're very well done in one sentence. That's a great question to clarify. What What are we talking about here? So let's start. Uh, this side has not been speaking no, as much well, the no, last few I minutes. Mean, I, I, I think it's Annie. a great
3: question because we've focused on parenting tonight. And, you know, frankly, parenting wasn't even a verb, you know number of years ago. So the idea that, you know, parents have to, that it's all on parents is ridiculous. Frankly, what influences our children and who makes us who we are has everything to do with our peer relationships. There's a lot of research that actually it's not parents, it's your peers. That, you know, where you go to school, where, where you live, these are incredibly important influences on who our children become. And that's why, it, you know, what I think we have to get back to here, which is very important in terms of evaluating the research and the argument is that just because the environment is very difficult to measure because there's so many of these factors, it's unsystematic, as, as Robert said, doesn't mean that you should just throw it away. I mean, if we told you that, you know, chocolate cake makes people happy. It doesn't mean that love doesn't make people happy. It doesn't mean that you just discount all of the other things because it's very difficult to measure.
4: It raises an important point that genetics is defined very narrowly as inherited DNA differences. Anything that you can't explain with that is called the environment. And parenting is only one part of that. And it's true that we haven't studied all aspects of parenting. But boy, there have been thousands of studies trying to measure these things. And it may be, as you say, that we just haven't measured the right things. But at some point, you've got to say... Give um, up? No, I mean... you've got to say we, what we're finding is stuff that isn't measurable
1: and I think is idiosyncratic. We have another question uh, from uh, a regular uh, uh, attendee of our events, and uh, you're, you're out there, Leandra Ram, are you out there, hi. So you, uh, you emailed us, this means, the lesson is if you email us with a question you might get to be chosen to ask a question, um, and you told us that you have uh, a personal connection to this topic, and you would like to ask the debaters a question.
2: Great, my name is Leandra Ram, I'm an opera singer, and I was conceived from the repository for Germinal Choice. I recently discovered the identity of my biological father and some half-siblings through 23andMe. My donor father was a very important mathematician, and two of my half-siblings are an engineer and a mathematician. How have services like 23andMe changed this debate?
3: Yeah, so, I mean, look, I think that, you know, the idea that the genies, the genetic genies out of the bottle and that there's enormous curiosity, especially for someone like you to trace, you know, and find out that you have this you know, this heritage, basically. Um, You know, I think this is a direction we're going to go in. I'm not saying, oh, no, we can't do that. But I do think that, you know, how it affected you and how it made you think about how you, you know, your own personal narrative, you know, as a therapist, basically, I work with the stories we tell about ourselves. You know, yes, you may have, you know, been given a certain genetic hand, but how you end up you know, explaining who you are to yourself and to your therapist or to somebody you know, you're you know, in love with or any of the other people that we relate to is an incredibly important part of our own identity and, and how we evolve. So I think that that's the part of this. We don't know how apologetics, how the you know, DNA gets you know, gets to where you are. I mean, it doesn't really, at this point, apologetic scores don't really tell us anything about the pathways from those polygenic scores from those DNA differences to the person you are and that's what I think is something that we have to get you know a lot more information we have
1: time for one more question sir uh yeah Uh,
4: thank you Uh, further to the question of parenting and environment and for a little nuance on the nature versus nurture dichotomy, I'd like to invoke a, a book that may have first put this question on the map, Judith Harris's The Nurture Assumption, back in the 90s I'm sure you're all familiar with, in which she argued that, yes, genes are one of two enormous influences on a child's development, and that, but that while parents top-down have very little influence, the other big factor is the child's peer group and parents can have an indirect influence there. To what extent do you subscribe to Harris's once controversial thesis, and which side of the debate does it favor?
1: I'm gonna choose one person from each side, and I'd like to give that to you, Nancy.
0: Uh, Well, we know that people pick their friendships based upon similarities, not on differences, and I'm not saying that you recognize genes in another person, but you're going to find somebody that you're compatible with. Uh, people spend a lot more time with their peers than they do with their parents. I think it's not surprising that peers do have an influence. Uh, one of the twin studies showed that peers had an influence when it came to juvenile delinquency. So I think that it does make, make sense. But I think that there's room for both genes and environments in, the, in your particular issue. Page
2: you're pointing out that there's a whole system. So where do kids meet their peers? They meet them at school, they meet them at temple, they meet them at summer camp, but who's putting them in those situations, the parents? And I think it's difficult when we're thinking about this interrelated web of people to pick out one person and say, well, it's the child's genotype or it's the peers or it's the parents that scaffolded and structured this entire environment. That being said, if we're thinking about responsibility the parents are the grown-ups in that situation, right? So if I'm gonna say, well, why is my seven-year-old acting up? Well, i can blame the other seven-year-olds that he's happened to me in school, or I can think about, well, who is in charge of this classroom? Who's in charge of putting my kid in this social environment? So um, all of that to say, I think um, it's come back to Andrew Solomon's point of, can we really disentangle this interconnected web of people? The second point I wanted to make is that in the wake of Judith Harris's book, there was a number of twin studies. Robert did an enormous amount of work. I've done some of this work too, where we try to say, okay, well, can we account for some of this non-shared environment, this twin differences in something, by measuring something about the peer environment? Um, And that has largely been a really frustrating research endeavor, which has led, I think, to Robert's conclusion that this is randomness. This is unsystematic. I take a different view. I sort of think of it as, um, you know, if we think about uh, humans' um, efforts to predict the weather over most of human history, I think most of human history, they would say, well, this is is random. This is the capricious acts of vengeful gods. We can't predict this. But actually, it was just that we didn't have the appropriate models for modeling complex systems.
1: Thank you, Paige Harden. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our resolution is... Parenting is overrated. And now we move on to round three. And on round three, the debaters make closing statements, arguing for the resolution, Professor of Behavioral Genetics at King's College London, Robert Plowman.
4: Professor Siegel mentioned one of my favorite sayings or phrases about nature and nurture, and that is that parents are environmentalists until they have more than one child. So with your first child you can explain anything environmentally, that's the problem with environmental hypotheses. But when you have more children, you start to say, God, they were different from very early in life, I didn't do that, and you start to take genetics more seriously. This is how I met my wife, Judy Dunn, who is a developmental psychologist and the doyen of sibling relationships, and when I met her in the early 1980s, she was was perplexed by a finding that was consistent across her studies. Siblings in the same family are so different, even though they have the same parent who seem to be treating them pretty much alike. And so we met at a conference in, in 1981 in London in which she gave a talk on this from an environmental perspective. Why are siblings so different when their parents treat them very similarly? And then I, it was followed by my talk on why are siblings so different from a genetic perspective. So this sparked our relationship, which led to a true marriage of nature and nurture. (laughs) So what we're trying to say today is genetics is much more important than parents know. Parents don't have as much control as they think they do. So what we're suggesting is to liberate parents from the shackles of this burden of the nurture assumption, making them feel responsible for the way their children turned out. So please join our free parents movement and... Click on the blue icon showing that you're in favor of the motion that parenting is overrated. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Robert Plowman. And that's the resolution. Parenting is overrated. Here to make her closing statement against the resolution is um, psychology professor at University of Texas, Paige Harden.
2: So last year, my six-year-old broke his arm. He fell off a play structure and hyperextended, and he snapped his humorous in half. And we spent the night in the hospital because he had to have surgery with pins through his arm. And the whole night, I had one thought over and over again. Thank God we have insurance. So my son has access to the healthcare system through his allegedly overrated parents. And that makes my son different from 800,000 uninsured kids in Texas, the largest number of uninsured kids in the United States. Our opponents like to say that parenting matters, but it doesn't make a difference, and that, in fact, it's DNA that is the major systematic force in shaping people's life outcomes. We've talked a lot about parenting, but I want to talk about how troubling I find the idea that DNA is the only or the major systematic force in people's lives. Healthcare is a system, and it's a systematic force for people's lives. Political systems are a system... They're systematic force in people's lives. Injustice is a systematic force in people's lives. So I've, I've argued with Robert and Nancy about the scientific um, points in this, but I also want to close by thinking that I think that declaring DNA to be the only major systematic force in people's um, lives isn't only just scientifically inaccurate, but I think it's potentially dangerous and it's complacency.
1: Thank you, Paige Harden. And now to make her closing statement in support of the Resolution Professor of Psychology and Director of the Twin Study Center at California State University of Fullerton, Nancy Siegel.
0: I want to close with three stories about separated twins, virtual twins, and reared-apart triplets. First story is that I studied a set of British twins raised apart who met for the first time when they were 30. One lived in an educationally rich home, the other did not. But the second twin found that she loved to read got herself a library card, and visited her local library often. And when the twins met, they discovered they were the lovers of the same books, and when we compared their IQ scores, they were only points apart. The second twin exemplified what we call active gene environment correlation, the actual crafting of an environment compatible with who you are. Second story. I studied a set of virtual twins, the same age, unrelated partners who were so twin-like, And their father said to me, you know, Dr. Siegel, I expect them to be somewhat different, but not like night and day. Third story. I think that most of you are familiar with the recent documentary film, Three Identical Strangers. Some of you may have seen it. I studied those triplets at the University of Minnesota, and I'm writing a book about the study. One of the triplets, Robert said to us, our parents are very different, and we are very much alike in ways that have nothing to do with our parents. I say to you, you do not bring up your children, they bring you up. Twin and adoption studies have showed us that genetic influences affect children who in turn affect their parent. If we challenge you to think more deeply about that concept, please vote for the motion tonight. I thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Nancy Siegel. And our final speaker, speaking against the resolution, author, and parenting expert, Annie Plichette Murphy.
3: So when I was a child, the field of psychology was rife with theories that blamed parents, really blamed mothers, for a host of psychological problems in their children. You know, castrating mothers produced neurotic sons. Refrigerator mothers produced autistic children. So it's a relief to learn that most psychological traits have a very significant genetic underpinning. But tonight, you have heard the flip side of the blame game coin. Robert and Nancy assert that parenting is overrated, it really doesn't matter very much. Well, dismissing the huge role that parents play in their children's lives is as pernicious as blaming them. In fact, I think it's downright dangerous, and here's why. If you buy the argument that parenting is overrated, why would you want to invest in quality childcare? Why should we give parents paid maternity or paternity leave to bond with their babies? Why should we fix our broken foster care system even if 80% of the inmates in our prisons have spent time in foster care? In fact, why should we invest in any social programs that help make parents' lives a little easier if what they do really doesn't make much difference? Now, I'm sure Robert and Nancy are rolling their eyes and saying, well, that's not what we're advocating. And they may be the most socially progressive people in this room other than my brother-in-law, Jack, who's sitting there. (laughs) But um, I will say this, they are providing live ammunition to very powerful people who would like nothing more than the science to provide cover for their campaigns to cut funding to essential social programs at a time when challenged families need all the help they can get. Frankly, all parents need all the help they can get. I mean, to be told that parenting is overrated is the last thing they need. Just try telling that to anybody in this room who has had to soothe, feed, diaper, dress, bathe, entertain, console, coach, discipline, defend the people they love more than life itself, their children. So parenting, if anything, is seriously underrated, and I urge you to oppose this motion.
1: Thank you, Annie Plachette-Murphy. And that concludes our closing statements. I now have the results. Remember, the resolution is this. Parenting is overrated. Remember, we had you vote before you heard the arguments and again after you heard the arguments and we're going to name as our victor the team whose numbers have moved up the most in percentage point terms. So here are the results. On the first vote, parenting is overrated. 27% agreed with the resolution. 52% were against 21% were undecided. Again, it's going to be the difference between this and that vote and this one I'm about to announce that declares our winner. In the second vote, the team arguing for the resolution, parenting is overrated. Their first vote was 27%. Their second vote was 32%. They picked up five percentage points, which is now the number to beat. The team against the resolution, their first vote was 52%. Their second vote was 59%. They pulled up seven percentage points. That means the team arguing against the resolution is our winner on the resolution. Parenting is overrated. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This debate was recorded live at the K Playhouse in New York City. Intelligence Squared U.S. debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with support from the Rosencrantz Foundation. Clea Connor chang is our CEO. Shea O'Mara is Director of Editorial. Connor Kerfman is our Creative and Marketing Strategist. Rob Christensen and Mary Dewey are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host, John Donvan. This isn't the first time Intelligence Squared U.S. has tackled genetics. If you found this debate interesting, you'll also like two other debates we've done. Should we prohibit genetically engineered babies? And should we bring extinct creatures back to life? Scroll through the podcast feed or visit iq2us.org and you can hear those debates. And as always, if you want to help us bring balanced debate to more people across the nation, please rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening right now. Thanks so much.